Well, last week we began a new series in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, looking at the prophecy of Zechariah to Israel. And you may recall from chapter 1, verse 1, this happens during the second year of the reign of King Darius, which is about 520 B.C. According to chapter 1, around verse 12 or so, 12 or 13, at the end of the verse, we're told that Israel had been in exile for about 70 years. They'd been conquered by the Babylonians, exiled in Persia, uh, and for 70 years or so, they've been crying out how long in their suffering. And in chapters 1 and 2 of last week, we sort of took a look at God's comeback plan for Israel. He had called them back into the land. He had turned the heart of a pagan king to free them and indeed give them resources for the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Zechariah is prophesying at the same time as Haggai. Haggai was given a message by God to encourage Israel to finish building the temple. Zechariah was given a message by God to encourage Israel to rebuild their relationship with God himself. And again, chapters 1 and 2 sort of lay out, as we saw last week, this kind of comeback plan. So in chapter 1, verses 1 to 6, God called Israel to repent. The beginning of coming back into the land and coming back into relationship with God was the repentance of Israel. And then we saw in verses 7 to about 17 how God promised to relent. If they would repent, he would relent or hold off or pull back on his judgment against them. Around verses 18 to the end of chapter 1, we saw there God promised also to repay. You see that vision of the four horns and the four craftsmen. God was saying for every power, the four horns who raise up against you, Israel, I will raise up craftsmen, the four craftsmen. I will raise up leaders who will defend you and who will defeat your enemies. We go from this this repenting to relenting to the promise of repayment. And then we get this promise of restoration. That God would return to Israel and dwell in their midst, and he would restore to them all that they had lost. And verse 2 ends with verse 13 on this note of reverence. He would leave his people and leave the land quiet before him, revering him, honoring him, trembling at his holiness and his greatness. But there's a problem. In order for Israel to have relationship with God, something must be done about their sins. Only the perfectly holy can live in the presence of the perfectly holy. Without holiness, Hebrews tells us, no man shall see God. Yet all men have sinned. So how will Israel ever have a relationship with God restored if all of Israel is guilty of sin? Zechariah 3 gives us the answer. In this vision of the future, Zechariah sees a day when God himself will remove the iniquity of his people so they may live safely with him. That's the point of Zechariah 3. Let's read together. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. 
The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Amen. If you're taking notes this morning, uh, let me sort of outline this in two points. Number one, God prepares a high priest. God prepares a high priest. That's what we see in verses one to five. And number two, God prepares a holy people. God prepares a holy people. That's what we see in verses six to ten. So in verses one to five, it's the first point. We, God is preparing there for his people a holy priest. Now keep in mind, Israel has been out in captivity for 70 years. They're back now to rebuild the temple and to restore temple worship. And central to temple worship is this function, this work of the priesthood. That the priest is an intermediator between the people and God. The people can't come to God unless there's a priest making sacrifices and offerings that, that actually prepare the way and, and cleanse them in order to worship with God. God had established that himself. And so we're not surprised when we sort of come into that conflict of how a holy God will ever again be related to a sinful people that God in Zechariah 3 gives Zechariah a vision of a priesthood. I notice three things about this. We have a, an accuser, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Verse 1 puts us in a courtroom scene. Joshua is on trial. As high priest, Joshua is called to represent all of Israel before God. That was his job, to make offerings to the Lord on behalf of Israel. Verse 1, again, it puts us in this courtroom scene, and Joshua, notice, is standing before the angel of the Lord. And as we saw last week, that phrase, angel of the Lord, is often a reference to the presence of God himself. So he's standing before God at God's judgment. Now, at Joshua's right hand, stands Satan. The name Satan literally means the accuser. And that's what's happening in verse 1. Satan stands as a prosecuting attorney to argue a case, an accusation against Joshua, and insofar as Joshua represents all of Israel against all of Israel. 
In fact, that's what Satan has been up to since his fall, accusing the people of God. Listen to these words from Revelation 12, 7 to 10, or you can turn there with me if you like. There John in his revelation writes this, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. That's what our enemy does. Day and night before God, standing there to accuse us. Satan is a snitch. (laughs) The one thing nobody likes is a snitch. In my days in middle school and high school, the, the kid, man, the thing that gets you cut with me real quick is, is snitching. I mean, you know, you know how the snitches, right? They sort of entice you to sort of join them in their dirt. And then when they get caught, first thing they say is, oh, he did it, he did He started naming folk, right? That's Satan, the original snitch, luring people into sin. And the moment we are wrong before God, he starts pointing and accusing, and condemning. Now, beloved, I trust you see from verse 1 that Satan is real. There are many people in the world who do not believe in his existence. They think we're talking about fairy tales and, and red, you know, people in a red suit with horns and a little tail and a pitchfork. No, beloved, Satan is a prosecuting attorney, a fallen angel who is real and who is really making accusation against God's people. Some people won't believe in Satan until that day of judgment when they're standing before God and they look to their right and they're surprised that there he is with a case against him. It is vital that we be taught what to believe. And the Bible teaches us what to believe. And one thing it teaches us that we cannot see but is real is that Satan, our enemy, stands to accuse us. He stands to destroy us. And if Satan is real, beloved, then spiritual warfare is real too. Beloved, this is a vision, but it's not make-believe. Do not be deceived into thinking that Satan does not exist. He is, as Revelation 12 says, the deceiver of the whole world. And his greatest deception is to convince the world that he does not exist. And here we see Joshua. Appearing before him, accused. We have to keep watch for our enemy. So 1 Peter 5, 8 and 10. You can write that down and look there with me or look there later. 1 Peter 5, 8 to 10. This is what the Apostle Peter says. He says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he gives us instruction. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 
And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You see what Peter's saying? We have a real enemy seeking to destroy us, but stand firm in the faith. Stand firm, trust in God, resist him, don't give him an inch, don't give in to him, and God, the God of all grace, will make you to stand, will confirm you, will restore you, and will strengthen you. We have an adversary, an accuser, who hates Christ, and so he hates Christians. He loves to show up with accusations when God calls us to serve in some way. Keep in mind the context. God is now calling his people to do a great thing. And as surely as God calls his people to live for him, Satan shows up to oppose them. But we also have an attorney. We have an accuser, we have an an adversary, but we also have an attorney. That's what we see in verse 2. Notice what the text says. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? It's been said that a person who is his own lawyer has a fool for a client. Ain't that right, Andrew? Amen. If that's true in human courts, how much more true is it in the court of heaven where the prosecuting attorney is the most subtle beast in all of creation? If we were left to defend ourselves, we would surely lose the case. But beloved, we are not left to defend ourselves. Notice who speaks up in verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Joshua doesn't argue a word. The Lord does. The Lord is Joshua's attorney. Notice an interesting thing about verse 2. Notice there it says, the Lord says, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord doesn't simply speak up and say, I rebuke you. That's an interesting thing happening here in the, in the grammar of this sentence, isn't it? It reminds us of the psalm, Psalm 110, verse 1, which Jesus quotes in Matthew's gospel. Remember what's said there? Well, David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. There's a similar kind of wordplay here where the Lord says to the Lord, where Jesus Christ says to God the Father, rebuke Satan. And it's as if this text is saying, the Lord says to my Lord, you be quiet until I win your case. You stand still until I triumph in this argument. And he proceeds to rebuke Satan. Notice there, he sharply disapproves and criticizes and shuts down Satan. You notice in verses 1 and 2, the enemy actually doesn't say a thing. He's not given a chance to. The Lord shuts that down. And, and notice on what basis he shuts that down. First of all, he says, the Lord rebuke you who has chosen Jerusalem. And here we see here that great doctrine of election, that God has chosen for himself a people. And here's the glorious thing, beloved. God's election means our protection. Everyone that God chooses, he commits himself to not losing. If he tells you, he'll keep you. If he's elected you, he'll protect you. And so not only that, but notice what it goes on to say. He says, is this not rhetorically a brand plucked from the fire? A brand is simply a stick maybe used to stoke a fire. If you've ever done that in a fireplace, you poke the fire until the flames come up again. 
That's what we were. We were more or less sticks. We were brands prepared for the fire, good for stoking the fire. And if not pulled out of the fire, we would have been consumed by the fire of God's judgment. But here now, the Lord says to the Lord, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? God has snatched us from the flames. He has rescued us from the judgment. He has pulled us from that which would consume us in his judgment. And he has saved us. This is a picture of God saving his people. And this then is the basis for God rebuking Satan. He says, basically, listen, I chose them. They are mine. They are saved from the fire. You have nothing to say in this court. I hold you in contempt. Case closed. Case dismissed. We have an accuser, yes, but beloved, we also have an attorney arguing our case. And this means, beloved, we don't have to be busy about rebuking Satan. I know some people like to. I rebuke you. The devil is a lie. The devil is a lie. I rebuke you. I know that's well meant. But beloved, you never have to do that. Christ does that for you if you're his. And you might wish to ask yourself, why would you fire Christ as your attorney and argue your own case? And we might wish to see the blasphemy in that. Jude 1 verse 9. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Even the archangel leaves this argument to Christ. Rebuking Satan is God's job. Notice in verse 2, it's the Lord who speaks up. He has chosen Jerusalem. He has saved us like brands plucked from the fire. And notice the order of things there. God chose us and God saved us. And as a consequence, we are declared not guilty in this courtroom. Don't get it backwards. Don't, Don't reverse the order. As if we have to argue our case, prove ourselves, and, and by that, God then renders a judgment in our verdict and then protects us. No, 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 no. First comes God loving us and God saving us. And in the consequences, God protecting all he's loved and saved. Oh, this is the grounds, beloved, of our great joy. When the Lord argues our case, no one can convict us. And perhaps this is the idea that Paul has in mind in Romans 8, 31 to 34. Again, you can write this down or you can follow me there. Romans 8, 31 to 34. Listen to these questions that Paul asks rhetorically when he considers our salvation. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him give us all good things? Then he asked this question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Remember how he answers? It is God who justifies. And then he asked this question. Who is to condemn? 
Well, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's New Testament language that we have a resurrected Savior who's arguing our case at the right hand of God even right now. If God has saved you, beloved, there is no accusation that can be brought against you. There is no charge that will stick. There is no argument that will unsafe you. And this is why the third thing we want to see here is we have assurance before God. Yes, we have an accuser and we have an attorney. And because God is our attorney, we also have assurance before God. Notice verse 3. In, back in Zechariah 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Now you should never appear in court dressed in filthy clothes. Right? Even if you don't have much, any fancy clothes, make sure what you have is clean and pressed and neat. Right? If you don't, that's how many judges will decide that you're not showing respect for the court. But Joshua shows up in court with filthy garments. The word filthy is an adjective. The noun form of this word is sometimes translated vomit and sometimes translated, uh, to put it nicely, uh, human, human waste. The clothing symbolizes Joshua's own life and soul. He's dirty before God. So dirty that he is repulsive before God. That's how strong that word filthy is. The filthy garment symbolizes his sin and iniquity, the, the wickedness that's in him as a fallen human being. And beloved, that's all of us before God apart from Christ. Any of us who would attempt to appear in God's courtroom without Christ as our advocate appear before God soiled in soul with sin and iniquity. Let me put it this way. Satan actually had an ironclad case against Joshua. Satan ain't always lying when he point out our sin. Uh, sometimes he's spot on. And so again, the question is, how can sinners, this filthy before God, be sure of God's love and salvation. Well, it's clear from the metaphor, it's not by our righteousness, is it? It's not by the good things that we're done. We, we're standing there in those filthy rags. Isaiah talks about these filthy rags too, doesn't he? Isaiah 64, verse 6, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The best that we have to offer God is still dirty rags. Our assurance is not based on our cleanness. Notice the text, verses 4 and 5, is based on God's cleanness. Look there in verse 4 and 5. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord was standing by. You see that exchange? Angel of the Lord says, take away the filthy garments. Take away all of the sin and iniquity. And he explains that to us in verse 4. That's what he means. I have taken your iniquity away from you. Oh, to be saved is a marvelous thing. 
It is to have God reach into your soul and begin the removal of everything dirty and displeasing to him. It is to have God sort of reach down into your thoughts, reach down into your speech, reach down into your conduct, and begin the process of tossing out everything that, 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 is, that is nasty before him. But that's only one half. Here's the other half. God says, bring the righteous robes. Clothe him in the clean linen. It is also God sort of accounting to us his righteousness. His perfect, unblemished, pure goodness gets credited to the sinner. It's what the theologians call the sweet exchange. The other fancy word for it is imputation. It's a, it's a credit made to our account, which we didn't earn, which God graciously gives. Oh, when Christ is held out to you, you're being offered the greatest bargain. That the sins that anger God against you would be removed like dirty clothes. And the righteousness with Christ, which satisfies God, will be draped upon you like the most luscious robes. That's the sweet exchange that Zechariah is being given a vision of through Joshua the high priest. Our confidence before God depends upon this exchange. It's at the heart of the gospel message. It's at the heart of Christianity that we have done nothing to be right with God and everything to be disqualified with God, but God in his love and his grace has done everything to remove our sins and provide our righteousness through Christ his son. And this is why certain texts in the New Testament sum it up just that way. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be what? To be sin for us, that we in him might become what? The righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And this is what Peter explains. By this, your wounds have been healed. The deep wound of sin was cured by the sacrifice of Christ, taking our place on the cross, giving himself, becoming sin for us, so that we who were the true sinners might become righteousness in him. Beloved, that's the whole of Christianity. Everything we are grows up out of that exchange. Everything we offer is summed up into this. Sinner, you may be clean before God, not by what you do, but by what Christ has done for you. There is no better offer in all the universe. If you're here and you are bothered by your uncleanness before God, if you're here and you have a sense of the filth of your sin. If you're here and you can think about your past, the ways you have failed, the ways you have rebelled, the ways you have really been running toward destruction apart from God, apart from his love. If you have a sense of the ways in which your sin has hurt other people, defiled other people, 
misled other people. If you're here and you have a sense that you have polluted yourself before God, you have come to the right place. For God will take all of your pollution, all of your sin, all of your dirt, all of your guilt, all of your filth, all of your rebellion, all of your trespasses, all of your wickedness, all of your iniquity, all the ways you have sinned against others and broken others and broken yourself. And he will exchange all of that with a perfect righteousness which Christ has provided. He calls you to confess your sin, repent of it, which means to turn away from it and to put your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ who was crucified for your sins, who was raised from the grave for your righteousness, and who is coming again to get his people. Sinner, don't be discouraged that you're a sinner. Be encouraged to go to Christ. Run to him. Trust in him. He will clothe you in righteousness. Trust him. And Christian, again, this is the basis for our great assurance that Christ has already clothed us in these righteous robes. These are the, the, the spotless white linen of the, of the priesthood before God. But we have another assurance too, don't we? It's right there at the end of, the, of that verse, verse 5. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. That's not just a throwaway line. This is not a line to sort of switch scenes in the play. God doesn't, just be, God doesn't just speak just to be speaking. Well, our assurance comes also from the fact that God is with us. He is with his people. He is dwelling with us. He is by us. He is helping us. He is keeping us. He is, he is sanctifying us and leading us. We're not alone in the Christian journey. And we're not left just to the fellowship of the saints in the Christian race. No, we have God running before us and running with us and running behind us and carrying us. The presence and the power of God is always available to his people. And without it, we have no reason to be hopeful. If God should withdraw from us, which he won't, but if God should withdraw from us, what a calamity that would be. You remember Moses on the eve of, of leading his people into the promised land when, when God at one point had, had threatened that he was not going to go up with the people. You remember Moses' reaction, oh Lord, if you ain't going, I ain't going. We're going to stay right here. Where you at? And you remember the promise of Jesus in the, in the Great Commission. He sends his church into the world to make disciples of, of all nations, as we put it in our mission statement, from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. But you remember the promise that ends that gospel, don't you? And behold, I am with you even until the end of the age. All of the Christian faith is about this promise of being with God and God being with us, of he being our God and we being his people, of us finding a home with him. In one sense, that's the whole arc of the Bible, from God dwelling with Adam and Eve in the garden and then sin ruining that relationship, to God promising to Abraham that he would make him a great nation and lead him into a, a land flowing with milk and honey, to God leading Israel out of the Exodus and building a tabernacle and living in the tabernacle as he led Israel by fire and by glory. 
to God tabernacling among us in human flesh in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. To God then, after the resurrection, sending forth his spirit to live in us who are, are God's people. We are, we are not just isolated from God. We have become temples of God in whom he lives. To God giving us that final promise of wrapping up time in history, of ushering in eternity, of no longer building any temples because he and Christ will be the temple of that place and we will be together with him forever to enjoy the glory of his presence face to face. Christian, whatever goes on in your life, and there are many things that can disturb us, whatever goes on in the Christian life, do not forget that God is yet present with you in it all. Let his presence be your assurance. Let his being with you and you being with him be the promise that comforts and strengthens and consoles. We have an accuser, but we also have an attorney. Because Christ is our attorney, we also have this assurance. God here is preparing Zechariah for this life as a priest to serve in the temple. And when we come to verses 6 to 10, the, the camera kind of zooms out. He zooms out not just at looking at Joshua the high priest, but by the time we get to verse 9, he has zoomed out panorama to look at the whole land and all of the people. And in these verses we see God prepares not only a priest, but 6 to 10, he prepares a holy people as well. Whenever God saves a people, he means to sanctify that people. His saving work continues in his sanctifying work. We're not to think that God plucks us from the fire and leaves us burning. No, he plucks us from the fire. He blows off the judgment. And he sanctifies, he makes us holy for his use. So notice what he does in verses 6 and 7. He calls Israel to obedience. The angel of the Lord gives Joshua a solemn or serious assurance. Then verse 7 gives us the assurance itself. Look there. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. We see that if-then statement. If you walk in my ways. In other words, Joshua, if you learn to live like I live, if you follow in my footsteps in righteousness and holiness and obedience, if you walk in my ways, then, then there's something that will result from that. If you keep my charge, there's something that will result from this. You will rule my house. You will have charge of God's courts. You have the right of access among those standing here. Now those are interesting promises. Because what those promises mean is that the temple will in fact be rebuilt. In these promises is the assurance that Israel will, re will rebuild the temple. The, the, the system of sacrifice and worship of God will be reinstituted. And there Joshua the high priest will rule in the worship of God's people. We'll have the right of access among God's people. He'll be the one as high priest who can go into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God. You might put it this way. If Joshua and Israel are faithful to God, they will enjoy the blessing of being with God. That same promise belongs to us too, beloved, if we believe in Christ. 
God prepares his people for his presence by calling them to obedience. But notice now, God goes on to promise that Israel will have a savior. That's what we see in verses 8 and 9. Look there. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Now those two verses are both difficult and beautiful. Especially when you come down to that stone and seven eyes and all that good stuff. I know y'all waiting me to tell you what that means. I don't completely know, but let me, let me tell you, let me tell you what I do know. Notice that he says in verse eight that Joshua and the high priest and his friends, which are probably other priests who minister in the temple, that they are all a sign. Now the thing about the symbol is that it's not the substance, right? So this is not merely about Joshua and the priest. They are, they are signs of the substance of the one who is to come. And then we get three descriptions of the one who is to come. Notice there, he is a servant, he's a branch, he's a stone. That servant imagery gets taken up in the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 54, which promises that this servant will come and he will redeem his people by suffering for them. That branch imagery gets picked up later in Zechariah 6, verses 11 and 12, but it also gets discussed uh, in, in other passages of Scripture. Well, this branch is a king descended from David. So this suffering servant is also the messianic king. And we see the stone imagery used also in the scripture. Now, this could be used of the cornerstone for the temple. It could be used of of the plate that the priests wore on their head, which said, holy unto the Lord. Or it could have messianic significance. We think of places like Psalm 118, verse 22. You know those words, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Isaiah 28, 16. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Or again, where God says in Isaiah, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious stone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes in him will not be in haste. Verse 9 says that there are seven eyes on this stone. Seven here symbolizes perfection or completeness. In other words, this servant, who is the branch, who is the stone, will have the complete focus and attention of God. All eyes on him. And notice what he will do. When he comes... He will remove the iniquity, not just of Joshua, as we saw in verses 4 and 5. He will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. In one day, this promised Savior will take away the sin and the wickedness of the entire land. The fact that this single day removes all iniquity lets us know this is a supernatural act of God, isn't it? It's really a kind of revival. 
Zechariah is shown a vision of a time where God will save his people in super abundant numbers. Well, when did this happen? Well, not in Zechariah's day. They would rebuild the temple and they would begin to make offerings. And those offerings would also signal the day of atonement and the forgiveness of the Lord. But when it happened in truth, it was on that day when the Son of God, who is the suffering servant and the branch of David and the chief cornerstone, was crucified on Calvary's cross when his blood flowed red as a sacrifice for sin. The Lamb of God took away the sins of the world. He died and removed the iniquity of his people. That was the day on Calvary when the sun hid its face in the middle of the day and the curtain was torn in two and the Son of God hung his head and died. That atonement was made really and truly and fully for the sins of all the land. And in that day, For all who believe, iniquity was taken away by our God. This is why if you're new to Christianity, we keep talking about the cross of Jesus. This is why all of our worship sort of may appear odd to you, but it centers on songs and prayers to a man who was killed, but whom we believe was raised from the grave. A man who was tortured in a Roman execution, but who we believe brings life to the world. Because on that day, your sins, if you would believe, and our sins, who have believed, were taken away, really and truly, finally and forever, never to be charged for them again. And that day, 2,000 years ago, that blood shed then, continues to work to this day. And will work on into glory. And this is why, beloved, we make Jesus the center of everything we do. This is why we try to make sure we tell you this message in every sermon we preach. This is why as you listen to Jahil pray, he began praying these very things in his prayer. This is why as you heard Daniel give testimony, he could give testimony to his sin and rejoice because he wasn't left in his sin. He wasn't crushed because of his sin. He was a brand plucked from the fire by a merciful and gracious God. This is why we offer it to you. It's the best news we know. It's the greatest story ever told. It's the most wonderful truth in the universe that Jesus, the Son of God, takes away the sins of the world. And all God calls you to do is believe in him and follow him. That's what's happening in verses 8 and 9. This is God's plan for our salvation. Now, beloved, this happened on that day when Christ was crucified. But if we're Christians, I want to encourage us to pray for something pretty specifically here based on this text. We believe in the enduring power of the cross. But we know that our land, not everyone in our land has had their sins removed. Not everyone believes. And we are thrilled along with heaven, to see even one sinner repent of their sins. You know what the Bible says? All of heaven rejoices at the repentance of one sinner. We are thrilled about that. Don't want to take that lightly. 
But let's pray for revival. Let's pray that God would send forth his spirit in such power that we would collect people into the kingdom, not by ones and twos or tens and twenties, but we would see people come into the kingdom by hundreds and thousands and ten thousands. This city would be subdued and bow the knee to Christ almost to a person. That our neighborhood from house to house, it would be hard to walk down the street without hearing the singing of hymns in every home. That it would be difficult to walk down the street without seeing old men and old women still on the street corner, but instead of telling them them tall tales about how great they were when they were young, you know, lying and sinning, (laughs) we hear them gossiping about Jesus, speaking of his power, giving testimony to his grace. Pray for revival. Pray that God would be so generous as to give his spirit in added measure to save our neighbors and our family and our co-worker and bring them into the love of God and the assurance of Christ. And pray, finally, that we would know the safety of verse 10. You see how the chapter ends? In that day, the very day God takes away the iniquity of the land, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. I love that verse. One of the wonderful things about living in the Caribbean for a season were the fruit trees. I mean, just all over the island, you got all kind of fruit trees, man. Mango, tamarind, sour sap, sweet sap, ackee. Good stuff. Somebody know. I hear somebody, I hear somebody moaning. Some folks know. A few Caribbean folks in here. It's interesting. When, when, when a person builds a home in the Caribbean, especially if it's like their dream home, their family home, one of the first things they do is they plant fruit trees. Right? And many of those trees kind of symbolize a, a kind of prosperity and comfort. Right? That's the point in verse 10. When God, through Jesus Christ, removes our iniquity, he also brings to us this picture of safety and prosperity. Everyone, notice the text says, everyone will have their own vine and fig tree. Because this is the other thing that's true about the Caribbean and kids growing up, grown folks too. You know, walking down the street and they see fruit on your fruit tree, they don't feel any qualms about getting your mangoes off your fruit tree, right? There's been many a day we came out outside to see our little fruit tree. We've been watching this mango because you watch the mangoes ripen, right? You've just been watching this one mango for about two or three weeks. And you go out there that day when you think it's time to get the machete and chop. That mango gone, man. <laughs> everybody ain't got a fruit tree in a fire, right? But everybody want mangoes, right? And so the text says everybody will have their own, um, I'm going to say mango tree, but then, I mean, everybody's going to have their own fruit tree and, and vine, right? So there'll be no need to take from neighbor. That's how plentiful is the restoration of God to his people. But notice also, everyone will be free to share too. You can invite your neighbor under your fig tree, under your vine. A picture of community and fellowship, of sharing and generosity of love and togetherness. You see the flow there in verses 6 to 10? God calls us to obedience, and the result of that is communion with him. That's based on the prior removal of the land's iniquity. And then there's the enjoyment 
of all of God's blessing and all of God's bounty right there in his presence. James Montgomery Boyce said, only on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice can anyone properly sit under his vine and fig tree enjoying the blessings of this life. If we are not justified, in other words, if our filthy garments haven't been removed and we've been declared righteous, if we are not justified, prosperity is a fatal illusion. It tempts us to believe that all is well when all is not well. It lures us to the fires of hell. It is only when we are justified that we can see these things as having come to us from the hands of God and praise him for them. Prosperity preachers distort the gospel by making it all about material blessings. Well, you should reject that. It's not the main thing. Being with God is the main thing. But we should not reject the truth that God does bless his people. He is good to us. And in Christ, we do have our vine and fig tree under which we rest and fellowship and eat. This last verse is simply an invitation to enjoy God, delight in him, and delight in all his good gifts. Not as a way of earning his favor, but as the demonstration that he's already given you favor. Trust in Christ. Be clothed in righteousness. Enjoy God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Oh Lord, how great is your salvation that you would take sinners clothed in the filthiness of our sin and that you would dress us in your unblemished, perfect righteousness. You did that lovingly. You did that graciously. You did that sovereignly. Not because of anything that we have done, but just because you loved us. You loved us because you loved us. And we praise you for such free, undeserved love. And we would that everyone would receive this love. And everyone would delight in your grace. And everyone would be clothed in your righteousness. And everyone would praise in your courts. And everyone would go home to vine and fig, delighting in the abundance of the Lord. Help us to be faithful to enjoy your presence and to proclaim your greatness. Even now, open a heart to believe in Christ. Even now, assure a saint that their faith is well-placed. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.